Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Today, we'll be expositing the final verses of Romans chapter 1. We'll be taking a look at verses number 28 through 32. For those of you who have been listening to this series on Romans from the start, remember that we began our exposition of the epistle on April 12, 2019. Now, after eight months and 30 lessons later, we will finish our study of the first chapter of Romans. Considering there are 16 chapters in the New Testament book, it looks like we will be in this letter for quite some time. God willing, over the upcoming months and years, we will complete an exposition of the entire book of Romans so everyone who hears these words will have clarity and meaningful answers as to what this foundational book on doctrine says, means, and how it applies to your Christian life in general. So again, today we will be in Romans 1 verses 28 to 32. Our text stands at the very end of an argument that the Apostle Paul begins in Romans 1.18. And what does Paul say in that argument? He basically explains the universal problem of sin. The text tells us that not only is the problem expansive, it also runs deep into the hearts of all men. Because sin is so all-pervading, a person cannot rid themselves of their own spiritual disease. Even more, because of sin on earth, the wrath of God is subsequently revealed from heaven against sin. This is all bad news, and by design, the apostle tells us the bad news first before he begins expounding the glorious good news of the gospel. The gospel is God's plan to deal with the sin problem. It tells us what God has done through Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. Romans 1, 18-32 tells us that in response to man's truth suppression, God reveals his wrath. Specifically, how God expresses his wrath is by judicial abandonment. That is what is referred to in verses 24, 26, and 28 when God gives men over. Judicial abandonment speaks to the reality that God permits some to fall into the sin that they want. God subsequently allows them to do without restraint. What the person gets is a life full of sin, which essentially equates to a life filled with shame, misery, and hopelessness. All of that is what the text says up until the final verses of chapter 1. We now move to our theme verses, which describe to us the final effects of judicial abandonment, where we see man at his worst. So Romans 1, 28-32 says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
Verse 28 begins by saying that they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. The Greek word for acknowledge is dokimazo, which precisely means to put to the test, to prove, or to distinguish if something is genuine or not by testing. This word speaks to the work of a metalsmith who has to prove a particular metal is the real thing by subjecting it to scrutiny. So what verse 28 is telling us then is that the unrepentant sinner puts God on trial, measures, scrutinizes, and evaluates him, and then comes to the conclusion that God is deficient. They subsequently recognize God is not worthy, do not approve of him, and toss him aside. The result is a person who lives without consideration of the Lord. Compare this to the believer who has their eyes opened and who acknowledges the genuineness and worth of God in all spheres of life. Because God is truth, when the sinner rejects the true God and his knowledge, what they are left with is a mind filled with lies and darkness. Because their mind is dark, they can choose to do nothing that is of the light. This neatly connects with what Paul writes next. Verse 28 continues and says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Here now we see the end result of judicial abandonment. That result is a depraved mind. Now what is a depraved mind exactly? The word for depraved in Greek refers to something that fails to pass the test, that is unapproved or is counterfeit. We again see use of a term from the field of metalworking. Metalsmiths used to refer to metals that were depraved and were therein discarded because of their impurities. So look at what Paul is telling us here with clever word choice that those with depraved minds regard God as not worthy, when in reality it is them who are corrupt. And how depraved it indeed is when the wicked creature finds fault in the Holy Creator. So what is a depraved mind? It is a mind that is godless, corrupt, useless, not profitable, and has a pronounced inclination toward evil. The depraved mind is far more wretched than a foolish mind in that it regards that which is evil good and that which is good evil. A depraved mind sets its thoughts on everything that is contrary to the Lord. God's mind is the perfect example of one that is approved, tested, and genuine. In contrast, Satan's mind is the perfect example of one that is totally depraved not approved, failing the test, and proven to be counterfeit. It is because Satan has a depraved mind that he continues to wage war against an unconquerable, almighty God. So that is what a depraved mind is. What kind of things does a person with a depraved mind do? The end of verse 28 tells us, those things which are not proper. Things that are not proper refers to that which is forbidden or shameful. Hence, the person with a depraved mind, in fact, knows that certain things are shameful, but they do them anyway, which only adds to their own depravity. This type of person does improper things because they don't reflect upon their behaviors. This person is so infatuated with the self, they continue to simply do what they want to do. The depraved mind sets itself on the unholy trinity of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
What Paul will go on to say in Romans 12.2 is that the Holy Spirit is the agent who renews our minds. God is the supreme good, so when he acts on a person, they know what is proper and are then enabled to do that which is proper. A mind that is devoid of God is devoid of good. The result is the failure to comprehend good and the failure to practice that which is good and proper. Without God, a man is not filled with the Holy Spirit and is therefore filled with sin. What results is what Romans 1, 29-32 describes to us. In these verses, the apostle lists 21 vices which have commonly been called the road to hell. It is a road that shows us what it looks like when a person moves farther and farther away from the Lord. Indeed, complete separation from God is what hell is by definition, but what these vices make plain to us is that some men may try to make it seem like hell on earth by behaving badly. Of course, they are behaving badly because of godlessness. One of the reasons why the text goes into such detail to describe to us what sin looks like is because God takes sin very seriously. And because God takes sin seriously, the Bible does not mince words when it talks about sin. The reality is, sin is not a game because the ultimate consequence of sin is irreversible death and eternal condemnation in hell. In fact, the ultimate form of judicial abandonment is hell itself, where God gives a man over to the sin that he desires. God is fully aware of sin's consequences, which is why he has gone to great lengths to warn us about sin. It is also one reason why he sent his son to atone for the sins of his elect. Many people in modernity don't like talking about sin because they don't take sin seriously. They do not take it seriously because they do not know how dangerous it is. They fail to see that unrepentant sin invariably leads to abominable trouble. This is why anyone who takes sin seriously also takes people seriously, cognizant of where that sin will lead people. Anyone who takes sin lightly is in essence admitting that they have a low regard for human beings. Taking sin lightly is therefore never love, it is hatred in disguise. In what follows, I will briefly comment on the 21 vices in Romans 1, 29-32. I will not go into a deep discussion on the individual vices themselves. The point is to consider them all as a whole. There have been many Bible scholars who have tried to provide a logic for why these specific vices are listed and why they appear in a particular order. It is very difficult to determine such an organizational logic if one does in fact exist. Subsequently, my focus here is on the group as a whole, which gives the reader a big picture view of what godless living looks like. So verse 29 begins the list of vices. It says, Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. If you recall, we talked about ungodliness and unrighteousness in our exposition of verse 18. Both refer to sin, but ungodliness refers to sin against God. Unrighteousness refers to sin against men. Unrighteousness flows from ungodliness. 
Accordingly, in verse 29, unrighteousness points to unjust relations among men, where one party does something unwarranted to another, or if they take something away, that is not warranted. The end result is that no one gets his due. And verse 29 tells us that the perpetrators of unrighteousness are filled with it. This filling results in a lifestyle of corruption so that evil becomes habitual and customary. The point is that a person who is filled with unrighteousness does not commit one vice once in a blue moon. Neither do they do it and then repent. Rather, they do it and then continue to do it as a dysfunctional way of life. The first three vices are wickedness, evil, and greed. Wickedness in Greek comes from a compound word that means without righteousness. Wickedness is therefore best defined not by what it is, but by what it is lacking. Evil refers to malice, but also the will to do harm to others. It is the desire to harm other people. Greed is the opposite of contentment. Greed is the desire for more, even if that desire is just so ever slightly above and beyond what you have. Greed is, of course, dangerous because in a world of finite resources, if I gain, that means the person next to me must lose. If a person is greedy for something and has a malicious disposition, the sinner will resort to anything to satisfy their lust. The last clause of verse 29 says those who are given over by God are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, that they are gossips. The person who is full of envy is more than greedy. Greed simply desires stuff, but envy is spiteful. Envy does not like another person and wishes them no good. It is glad when the other person suffers pain or misfortune. Murder refers to intentional, unjustified homicide. Strife refers to a person who is literally quarreling, but who is also always ready to quarrel in that they have a contentious spirit. Deceit refers to using bait in order to hook people. It employs treachery to dupe the naive. The Greek word for malice refers to an evil disposition in that the person is evil-minded. This goes back to what I said before in that the person being described here engages in habitual unrighteousness. Although the NASB translates the final word of verse 29 as gossips, the original Greek word speaks more of a secret slanderer. That is, someone who whispers in a corner and who tries to destroy someone else's character with words. Hence, while murderers use their fists or sword to destroy life, slanderers use their tongue. While the gossips weaponize language in private, the next verse will speak of slanderers proper who weaponize language in public. The Catalog of Vices continues. Verses 30 to 31 says, Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. The next six vices all speak about immoral excesses. The fact that the unrepentant are haters of God should come as no surprise because the reason why they suppress the truth about God in the first place is because they despise him. 
As a result, they substitute the god they hate for the little g god they want and worship it instead. Someone who is insolent is violently aggressive and is always lashing out against others. The person who is arrogant thinks they are above others and can therefore treat the next person without honor, respect, dignity, or consideration. The boastful person is also an imposter in that many of the things he boasts about are not in fact true. He boasts about things that are not as they seem. Those who are depraved are also inventors of evil. This is truly unfortunate because instead of using their God-given minds to write prayers or to meditate about the glory of God, they think about new ways to sin. Hence, when depravity gets creative, it invents brand new ways to spite God. Disobedience to parents is also characteristic because the person who rejects God's heavenly authority certainly finds no problem rejecting mom and dad's earthly authority. In the end, if a person regards themselves as sovereign and does what they want, parental authority only gets in the way. The next four vices speak about deficiencies. The unregenerates are also without understanding because they lack an understanding of the divine truth. They are untrustworthy in that they cannot be trusted to what they commit themselves to. Their consent with words or their signature on paper doesn't in actuality mean anything. They are also unloving because they have rejected the love of God. The result is a lack of natural affection and not purposefully acting for others. They are also unmerciful or without compassion and are cruel. That concludes the list of vices. Now we have arrived at the final verse in Romans chapter 1. So verse 32 says, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In the preceding verses, the Apostle Paul made it clear that a basic awareness of God was made evident to all men. Paul now also reveals to us that the unrighteous deeds of the depraved are all inexcusable since they were not done in ignorance. They were done with the crystal clear understanding that what they are doing is wrong. Their mind is aware of the immorality, but their heart simply wants to do evil anyway. This is why verse 32 says that even though they knew, they practiced such deeds regardless. This tells us something very, very important, that no one is ever judicially abandoned by God against their own will. It is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man. That is, when God gives a person over, they are now free of divine restraint, but they rejoice in that presupposed liberty. No one is ever judicially abandoned, kicking and screaming. Instead, with their free moral agency intact, the reprobate now do what they desire to do, and the result is unrighteousness. The fire that drives the depraved sinner into darkness is within him, not without him. Hell, then, is merely a natural continuation of the path that a person begins to take in their earthly life. But not only that, depravity at its worst compels a man to approve of the evil he sees other people doing. 
This is when depravity extends beyond the individual and then permeates tribes, communities, societies, and empires. The danger here, of course, is that when depravity begins to have social sway and political power behind it, the persuasion of many can now be used to punish the righteous and protect the wicked and openly encourage total depravity. As John Calvin once wrote, quote, For it is the summit of all evils when the sinner is so devoid of shame that they are so pleased with their own vices that they will not only not bear correction, but also approve the same in others. End quote. The person who feels shame and guilt is actually in an advantageous position. Why do I say that? Because shame and guilt unsettle a person and persuade them to look for means to appease their culpability. This is why Christ invites all sinners to come to him, because he takes away all of our shame and guilt over sin at the cross. But if a person does not feel shame, they are not healable. If a person lives in an environment where everyone else approves and cheers on the evil they do, they may in fact actually feel good about their sin. In such a case, there is no hope because everyone thinks they're okay. Guilt is in fact very, very powerful, so one way you can get people to avoid feeling guilty is to create a novel morality where what was wrong is now right. This helps to explain why, in the modern West, there are countless outlets that seek to assuage people's guilt. Why? So people can feel better about their cosmic rebellion against God. Here then, at the end of Romans 1, we see that the end result of man's truth suppression is that he inverts morality altogether. He not only does that which is wrong, he encourages others to do evil with him and cheers them along all the while. God thus punishes sin by abandoning the sinner to the commission of others. That now concludes an exposition of Romans chapter 1. Now before we close this episode, let us look back and rehearse where we have been, discuss some key take-home points, and take a look at where we are going. We know that Paul begins the epistle to the Romans with an introduction and he tells us why he is writing this letter, so that people may be established, grounded, and firmly rooted, verse 11. What are the people going to be grounded in? The Word of God. And how does Paul begin grounding the people? By talking about the gospel, verses 16 to 17. The good news of the gospel is God's salvation plan, and it is an announcement of what God has done to save man through Jesus Christ. Indeed, the gospel truly is good news, but Paul will reserve his precise exposition of the gospel until Romans 3.21. Before he gets to the good news, he explains the bad news, that everyone is guilty. So, because everyone is guilty, everyone is in desperate need of the gospel, whether they know it or not. Everyone is in desperate need of Jesus Christ, regardless of whether they like God or not. Now, why is everyone in such desperate need of Christ? Because only God can save you from the wrath of God, and the wrath of God is revealed against all sin. Everyone is a sinner, and only Christ paid for sin once and for all. 
Romans 1, 18-32 expanded on the idea that God's wrath is revealed against sin, how it is revealed, and what the revelation of divine wrath looks like in real life. This text told us that God is a God of punitive justice. In fact, this is an essential attribute of His nature. If God did not express wrath against sin, then God would not be holy. This fact of the Lord's divine essence therefore makes the punishment of all sin absolutely necessary. It also makes it absolutely necessary for someone to act as a substitute and endure the penalty for sin if God were to save anyone. Hence, Romans 1 lays the foundation for the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ in order that sinners may be justly pardoned. Now, there are two listener questions I wanted to address before I close. The first is this. If Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed against all sin, then what about Christians? What about regenerated believers who sin? Will God unleash His wrath on them? The answer, in short, is no. For those who are in Christ, there is no ultimate penalty and no condemnation for believers. That does not mean God will not correct His own children or chastise them out of love. Yet chastisement or correction are not the same as revealing divine wrath. You see, all Christians sin daily and incur the wrath of God because of their sin. But what Jesus did on the cross is that He endured the wrath of God for our sin, for us. In that way, the wrath of God for His own has already been unleashed on Jesus. As a result, there is now no condemnation for those who have saving faith in the Messiah. Yes, I may commit a sin now, and Jesus died 2,000 years ago. But never forget that God is timeless, and there is no expiration date on the eternally sufficient sacrifice of the Son. Propitiation is a word in the Bible that refers to the turning away of wrath. Here is what the Apostle says in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Romans 8, 1-4 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Romans 5, 1-3 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. The second question that I wanted to address is if the totally depraved person of Romans 1 is redeemable. That is, if the depraved person has a mind that mimics Satan's, are they beyond redemption? Can the depraved still be saved? And the answer is, of course they can. No person is beyond the power of God to save them. Just ask Paul, the man writing the letter to the Romans. 
he qualified as the totally depraved wretch he was writing about. In fact, it was Paul who heartily approved of Stephen's murder in that Paul was the one who held the stone thrower's coats, Acts 7.58 and 22.20. Paul's mind was so depraved that he regarded evil as good. He regarded murdering Christ worshipers as the right thing to do. Beloved, God is the impossibility specialist. He can speak and a dead man raises from the tomb, John 11:43. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God can save anyone, even a totally depraved sinner. We often tend to think that some cases are too far gone to be saved except our own. But in the end, this is still God's world, so he cannot abandon us in the absolute sense. He can thus save whomever he wills, even one who is totally depraved. Now that we have finished Romans 1, where do we go next? The easy answer is Romans chapter 2 verse 1, but where are we headed in Paul's argument? Well, the apostle established that everyone is guilty in chapter 1, but he left a special group of people out. He left out the Jews, God's covenantal people. The question now remains, what about them? Are they sinners like the rest of humanity? Do they need a savior? In chapter 2, Paul essentially says yes to both of these questions. He says that everyone is condemned whether they have the law or not. In Romans 2.11, Paul writes, there is no partiality with God. Hence, because God is impartial, his justice actually means something. And no matter who you are or who you are affiliated with, you are guilty. There are no special passes for those who are blood descendants of Jacob, also known as Israel. In fact, what Paul says in Romans 2, 1-3 is that people judge one another all the time, and this interpersonal judging does not require a knowledge of the Bible. So, when one person judges another, they do so because they actually believe in right and wrong. And if right and wrong are actually real, then people are deserving of judgment. If people judge one another, it is always imperfect and partial. But when God judges people, it is always perfect and impartial. This leaves all of humanity guilty. Thus, as Paul will go on to argue in chapter 2, for the Jew who has the law, they are more responsible to God's justice because they have received a greater revelation of it. This means greater awareness makes responsibility go up, not down. The point of all of this is that everyone needs the Messiah, Jesus. And in the end, God's impartial judgment means something because when Jesus comes back, he will judge everyone impartially. No one escapes final judgment, so while it may seem like people are getting away with it now, that's only the way things seem. In reality, they are storing up wrath for themselves that will one day be unleashed. The only one in whom we find rest is our precious Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is the only one who saves us from the wrath of God. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.